Hi, and welcome to The Horn, a podcast from the International Crisis Group. I am Nicolas Delaunay, Crisis Group Senior Communications Officer for Africa. I'm standing in for Alan Boswell, who is currently on paternity leave. Today, we'll be talking to Nazanin Mashiri. Nazanin is a Climate and Security Senior Analyst at the International Crisis Group. She's here with us today to talk about the often complex relationship between climate and conflict in the Horn of Africa, a region which our listeners know is no stranger to extreme and increasingly erratic climate events. Nazanin, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Nicholas. Really pleased to be here. So, Nazanin, the links between climate and conflict is an immensely wide and complex topic. But before we, we delve deeper into it and specific situations in the Horn or, or the upcoming UN Climate Change Conference, the so-called COP27 in Egypt, I'd like to ask you about the climate fragility of this region. Uh, historically, the Horn of Africa has experienced a number of extreme climate events, and, and the most recent report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is quite gloomy, to say the least. Yes. Well, we do know that most of the African continent, of course, is semi-arid. It's prone to extreme variations in rainfall from year to year. So you do uh, hear from sceptics who will say, well, there's always been drought. How is that linked to climate change? Well, if we look at the evidence of what we're seeing currently, we're seeing as many as 20 million people in four horn countries facing extreme hardship, food shortages... And what we're seeing is an exceptionally long and severe drought. Three rainy seasons in a row have failed. The evidence from climate models that are extremely uh, clear and extremely good uh, compared to previous climate models. Basically, climate models generate maps of rainfall estimates around the world. Um, so these climate models have found that There is a potential, and it's a very high potential, that we're going to approach a fourth unprecedented failed rainy season. So if we just look a little bit at this evidence, what this evidence does, it looks at the root of the causes of the recent droughts in the Horn of Africa. So the roots can be found in the warm and warming waters of the Western Pacific Ocean. And that's called La Nina The scientific data is undeniable. There were 12 such events that led to drought between 1954 and 1998. But since then, so since 1998, there have been 12, including the last two years. So add to that the layers of environmental degradation, deforestation, for example, that we're seeing in Somalia from you know, illegal charcoal trades, trees being cut down. And add to that the fact that because we're seeing this recurrent drought, pastoralists don't have time to recover from the drought. We've seen a million and a half animals in Kenya alone that have died in this recent drought. So that delay and that issue of trying to rebuild livelihoods, that is having a huge impact. And add to that another layer of the desert locusts in 2019 and 2020, which basically decimated crops in some areas of the Horn, including in Ethiopia. Now, that is a pretty toxic mix. Now, the IPCC report um, is viewed as the gold standard because it's pretty conservative compared to other reports 
and it integrates only new research and it has a really extensive peer review process. So this latest working group report, which was released in February, basically not only highlights how climate change has caused increasingly irreversible losses, but it also says that the extent and magnitude of the impact of climate change is larger than those estimated in previous terms. So what does this mean for Africa? Well, we're looking at potentially up to 86 million internal migrants by 2050. Look, you know, there's a lot that can be done to adapt to these changes that we're seeing, but the IPCC is basically saying that that window is closing fast. Thank you very much, Nazanin, for, for this very interesting you know, picture that you've drawn of climate fragility in, in, in the Horn of Africa. Now, in, in this extremely fragile environment, could you give us an overview of where climate change and conflict intersect? I mean, look, it's, it's undeniable that climate change is a threat multiplier, that it's already increasing food insecurity, water scarcity, resource competition... But it's also very important to remember that it can exacerbate what are already localised historical grievances in many parts of the region. So, you know, when we're talking about herder farmer violence, you know, these are uh, grievances that have been happening for many years. But what these climate stresses are doing is causing a risk or a cascading risk, basically leading to more competition over land uh, and more livelihood insecurity. And also there's another aspect of this as well, transboundary water management issues, which we've seen with construction of of massive dams in Ethiopia leading to, to issues in other countries. I think it's really important to look at this from different perspectives. You know, it's it's not a linear relationship, climate and conflict. It's complex, it's really complex and context specific. I mean, in some situations you see that a small variation in climate even by half a degree, could lead to an increase in the risk of violence, up to 10 or 20% increase. But we see in other parts of the world that the small variation in climate doesn't have an impact at all. I mean, what's really important when looking at this is how local governance and how governance in general deals with these problems and how they share resources, how accountable they are if there's good inter-community mediation, And in some instances, let's not forget that volatile rainfall can actually mean more resources rather than less resources. For example, in the Mopti region uh, in the Sahel, this increase in resources and water actually led to conflict. Uh, So, again, we have to remember that this is a very complex relationship. And that is why we need uh, the social science, the climate science brought into this analysis And that's why it's so important that we can develop pathways, but base uh, these pathways on substantial and clear evidence. Now, you you, you were mentioning as we were preparing for this episode, the vicious circle in which some regions can enter and a a vicious circle whereby, you know, conflict can make an area more vulnerable to climate change than it already is, in turn providing fertile ground for more conflict. Could you elaborate on that dynamic which is observed in, in, in some places in the Horn of Africa? Sure, yeah. Just one example, an important example, um, is Tigray in, in northern Ethiopia, uh, where we've seen a conflict that has killed so many and displaced so many. So Tigray at the same time has been dealing with 
for example, a, a locust invasion. But because of the conflict, there was no way that it could deal with this invasion of locusts, um, spraying it, dealing with the impacts on, on crops. And in these conflict areas, it is absolutely impossible to you know, deal with the climate stresses, to deal with the drought, to deal with you know, water rehabilitation that's needed, to build dams, to um, you know, invest in drought-resistant crops. So this is just a vicious cycle, basically the fragility, uh, the impact of, of climate fragility on these areas, which are already suffering from conflict and instability and, and displacement, will just in turn get worse and potentially create more violence. Nazanin, now I'd like to, to turn to some specific situations within, within the Horn of Africa, and I'd like to start with Somalia. Uh, your, your work before Crisis Group included working as, as a member of the UN Panel of Experts on Somalia, for which you've done extensive research on the Al-Shabaab Islamist militants. We'd be extremely interested to hear from you what you think of the current situation in Somalia and, and the drought, and what role you see non-state actors like Al-Shabaab playing in this very complex jigsaw. I mean, look, climate change is often called an actorless threat. But from my perspective, this description masks you know, the differing ways in which conflict actors, including Al-Shabaab, can exploit these extremes you know, to further their own agendas. Of course, we're looking at Somalia, you have issues of poor governance, weak institutions, etc., a lack of territorial control that, that basically contribute to that as well. Um, and we've seen this in parts of the Sahel. You know, we've seen um, jihadist groups, armed groups, basically exploiting you know, the, the impact of climate stresses on recruitment, their tactics, etc., and you know, um, exploiting local grievances and issues. But in, in Somalia... Al-Shabaab has been damaging the environment for years um, through illegal charcoal exports and its contribution to that. Of course, uh, charcoal is also you know, the main fuel for people. And we've seen you know, seven, up to 70% of you know, forests been cut down for charcoal. Um, so that's a serious damage to the environment. But now what we're seeing um, is basically Al-Shabaab providing emergency services to those affected by drought and flooding, which has become even more irregular you know, due to these climate changes. So if you look at Somalia, 900,000 people, almost 900,000 people are estimated to live within territory controlled by Al-Shabaab. That's a huge number. And they remain largely out of the reach of international aid agencies. You know, they can't directly... Uh, provide aid to those areas. Although, unlike previous droughts, um, they are finding sort of ways around this. We have seen indirect deliveries of aid, you know, cash uh, and water trucks, but that's just like a tiny fraction of what's needed. So what Al-Shabaab has been doing, I mean, we've seen this, we've seen their, their propaganda, pictures of them, you know, with AK-47 slung on their shoulders, handing out food aid to women and children. But the difference now, this is more than just a PR campaign. Al-Shabaab, interestingly, interestingly, has actually set up a committee on drought. It's actually going to different areas, assessing needs and delivering aid. Um, and there are two reasons for this. One is Al-Shabaab needs legitimacy. It needs the support and to win the hearts and minds of people because it's, it's basically... Uh, saying that, hey, look, we are an alternative government, we're a shadow government, we, 
you know, we're, we're a better government than the central government. So it needs that legitimacy. And it also needs funding. It needs funding through taxation. I mean, it taxes everyone and everything. So I think it's really important that, you know, we as, as analysts and researchers look at this strategy of al-Shabaab, look at their actions, look at how they're contributing to violence and instability, but also try to find pathways to try to minimise this exploitative uh, behaviour and potential and try to see how governments and local governments can build climate and conflict resilience. Because, you know, Somalia is going to be one of the most impacted areas in terms of climate change. At the moment, there is no way, absolutely no way, that anyone uh, can get into those areas to build climate resilience, to, to invest in climate adaptation while you know, al-Shabaab is in control and while there's absolutely no dialogue uh, with al-Shabaab. It's very, very interesting and very sobering to, to hear how you know, a drought can become an opportunity for, for non-state actors like al-Shabaab. I'd like now to turn to, to Kenya, where a presidential election will be held in August. In, in the run-up to the last election in 2017, a particularly intense drought did intensify pre-existing tensions between communities, especially in, in Laikipia. Could you tell us more about what happened in 2017 and, and importantly, whether you see similar patterns in, in the run-up to this year's election? Sure. You know, I've, I've covered two Kenyan elections here and we're coming up to another contentious election. And as you mentioned there in 2017, you know, the focus was very much on Laikipia. Um, look, you know, local communities have, have fought for a very long time over the control of Laikipia. If you look at Laikipia, it has endless pasture lands. So local politicians uh, were accused in, in 2017 of basically using these traditional grievances to incite communities and gain advantage ahead of the polls. Um, so we saw ranch invasions, we saw violence. So if you just look at, look at um, the, the region of, around Laikipia, it borders these really semi-arid counties. So we're looking at Iziolo, Baringo, Samburu. So they suffer from regular droughts. And of course, as we mentioned, there's an ongoing drought at the moment. We're looking at a fourth season of ongoing drought which has battered these counties and really added to the stress. We're seeing rising populations, increase in livestock herds, etc., etc. So, you know, pastoralists are going to be forced, and they are being forced to search for pasture and move their cattle. And when they see these farmlands in Laikipia and these conservation areas, of course, this is going to lead to tension. You know, whether that's going to lead to, to violence ahead of the election, we have to wait and see. But definitely, from what I'm seeing and hearing on the ground, there is a lot of tension in these areas. Um, other hotspots that we're considering at the moment and looking at are, we mentioned Iziolo, but also Marsabit County as well, West Pokot. All of these counties have serious environmental issues and are vulnerable to political instigation. Um, in Lamu County, it's a bit more complex. Um, we've seen an uptick in al-Shabaab violence, which is tapping into local grievances. Historical land issues always surface here around the election. But what makes it more complex is we're seeing, you know, al-Shabaab tapping into that and using it to recruit. And in other parts of the northeastern region, we've seen the Kenyan government recently oppose a curfew in, in Garissa County. 
or parts of Garissa County after a series of deadly attacks fueled by land conflict there as well. Now, now Nazanin, when, when we talk about climate change in, in the Horn of Africa, I think a lot of people have in mind, you know, very, very, you know, compelling images of drought and, and starvation. But this is only part of, of the story. You were mentioning earlier uh, South Sudan, where extreme rains and, and floods have happened as a consequence of climate change. Now, could you tell us a bit more about South Sudan and, and how the floods in the country are contributing to the ongoing violence there? Sure. The floods in uh, South Sudan um, have been pretty dramatic. More than 700,000 people have been affected. UNHCR uh, is basically saying that the floods that we're seeing um, are the worst um, in parts of the country, the worst floods in nearly 60 years. And that's a really important comment and figure. So, look, you know, heavy rains basically sweep away homes, they inundate farmlands. And what they're doing is forcing families and livestock to seek safety on higher ground. So where is this higher ground? Mainly in Equatoria, in South Sudan. So what we're seeing, and we're we're basically trying to disentangle this evidence at the moment, but what we're seeing is an uptick in violence since 2022 in these areas, particularly in the dry seasons. Why in the dry seasons? Well, because herders tend to try to go closer to communities where there's pasture in the drier seasons because they need pasture and water for their cattle. So that can lead to tension and violence, and it has done. The states of Jongle and Unity are the worst affected, with floodwaters turning entire regions. I mean, the, the pictures that you see in the footage is really dramatic. Um, you just see like a water world with not even a dry spot in sight. Um, I mean, you can sail in those areas for hours and you just don't even see a road. So you can imagine the impact and people have not been able to cultivate their land uh, in many areas since 2020. And we just don't know when this water is going to recede. So inevitably, that's going to lead to tension and conflict in areas where uh, areas which are not flooded. Now that we've looked at uh, individual situations within the Horn of Africa, Nazanin, I'd like to ask you what you feel should be done by you know, policymakers, by international actors, by local governments to mitigate the risk of violence compounded by climate change. I mean, at the moment, we need kind of short-term solutions to try to deal with the situation, to try to save lives, but also to try to mitigate the risk of violence. So, you know, everything from water trucking, health services, trying to safeguard the livestock that is still alive with treatment and vaccination, you know, all of these things uh, are doable. And in 2017, for example, um, uh, humanitarian agencies were able to avert famine because they were able to do this very, very quickly. But in terms of longer term solutions, there needs to be land restoration, conservation of water catchments, etc., rehabilitation of water points, you know, moving away from charcoal to bio, use, the use of biofuels. All of these things can help deal with you know, the climate stresses and try to help prevent the risk of violence. Of course, you know, a lot of this is going to take uh, political will, it's going to take a lot of money. And, you know, what we're, what we're seeing in other parts of the world is that there is a lot of climate financing coming in, 
but in conflict areas and areas uh, which are risky, no one's going to invest in climate financing. No one's going to invest in these kinds of solutions. So unfortunately, a lot of this is going to have to come from, you know, public money, come from donor countries. And of course, at the moment, there's a lot of donor fatigue. Uh, the focus is very much on what's happening in Ukraine. But it's our job to sort of look at these issues, try to come up with, you know, early warning, anticipatory action, um, and try to highlight why it's important to do this now in order to prevent what's coming up. You, you, you make a very important point here when you, when you mention adaptation measures, because when discussing climate on, on the global stage, one of the issues flagged by African countries is the fact that mitigation measures are at a much more advanced stage and get much more funding than adaptation measures. So could you, could you break down those two approaches and explain to us why the balance between the two is important? So mitigation is more about you know, renewable energies, solar energy, for example, investing in wind energy. And adaptation could be anything from you know, using drought-resistant farming techniques to building sand barriers along uh, coastal areas which are being de degraded or degraded sorry, by climate change. Just looking at the situation here in Kenya... Uh, basically, adaptation funding has been really neglected. So not only does Kenya suffer from a, a shortfall in climate financing, it's also suffering from the fact that 79% of the financing that's coming into Kenya is directed towards mitigation. So things like agriculture, forestry, natural disaster response, water management, all of these things that could really help the country respond to these climate shocks are dramatically underfunded. So it's really important um, for this focus to shift. Of course, you know, funding for mitigation is really important too. But in areas like Kenya, um, you know, parts of Somalia, South Sudan, uh, you know, what, what we need and what African uh, leaders are saying is that we need more money for climate adaptation. Now, th this year is, is a very important year for, for African stakeholders working on climate change because the, the, the UN Climate Change Conference, so-called COP27, will be held in Egypt, in, in Sharm el-Sheikh. At the previous COP, COP26 in, in Glasgow, many African voices complained that the relationship between climate and conflict did not feature on the agenda. Now, how problematic was that and, and how do you see this playing out in this year's COP27? The reality is it's unlikely that climate-induced violence will be included on the agenda again. From, from my perspective, the climate change conversation really remains incomplete without looking at the increasing impact of climatic distress on conflict. So if we can try to get that on the agenda, even inside events, if possible, I think that will be hugely important. And from the African perspective, look, this is the, the Africa COP. It's in Sham el-Sheikh in Egypt. It's a unique opportunity um, for um, African nations to basically go there, prepared, organized with a uni unified voice, a consistent voice, talking about the consequences of climate change for the continent, the urgency that's needed to take action. So I think this is a un unique opportunity uh, for 
African leaders and policymakers to, you know, bring uh, climate and security into those discussions uh, as much as possible. Nazanin, I realize that there's there's a lot of doom in, and gloom in, in what we've discussed uh, today. And, and so I wanted to, to ask you uh, as a last question, to what extent uh, you think there's an alternative, one in which you know we can look at climate change as not necessarily being a driver of conflict or a threat multiplier. Um, and you know this may be wishful thinking on my part, but you know a, a way of looking at climate change as a, as a way of bridging gaps between communities. Sure. When we're looking at um, these issues, it's really important uh, how local governance deals with these problems. So, you know, we can actually look at this narrative of competition and tension and, and move it and look at it from the perspective of a shared problem, which could lead to shared solutions. So, for example, um, here in Kenya, two regions um, which have been battling for years over shared resources and pasture and water um, in West Pokot in Turkana. This is in the very north um, of, of Kenya. They recently signed a peace deal over livestock and, and pasture. And that was a consequence of, you know, really good intercommunity mediation mechanisms, peace building that people were focusing on. So, you know, we've seen examples of this also in the Lake Chad Water Charter uh, in 2012, which was signed by heads of state, states. So there are glimmers of hope there where, you know, we, we can shape this narrative, try to enable states and also local communities to try to find a, a vision, a joint vision, um, where they can cooperate and find opportunities to come up with joint solutions. So I think this is really important and it does give me some hope for the future. Nazanin, thank you very much for that extremely interesting discussion and, and for being our, our guest today. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to The Horn. If you want to find out more about Crisis Group or read our reports, uh, head to our website, crisisgroup.org. Our producers are Mae Francis and Aida Holly Nambi. Thanks for listening.